This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Stuart McGuigan, the State Department's Chief Information Officer. Stuart, welcome to the program. Unfortunately for us, this is an exit interview of sorts. You haven't been on before, though we've talked to plenty of your folks in your office, but I'm glad to at least get you on before you uh, exit the door. So uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. The State Department is a much, obviously, different place than when you got there about 22 months ago, give or take. So let's talk about your tenure at the State Department. What were some of your goals coming in? This was, correct me if I'm wrong, your first job in government. Yes, this is my uh, first job in government. But it's amazing how many similarities there are with a large corporation. Johnson & Johnson is not quite in as many countries as the State Department, but close and highly decentralized. And so I found a lot of the experiences that I had at J&J were relevant to the State Department. We'll get back to your career in a little bit, because I know you spent most of your career in the private sector. So I'm fascinated to hear more about the similarities and differences between someone, a place like Johnson & Johnson and the State Department. But let's just talk about your tenure at the State Department. I was a little surprised that you are a political appointee. I know that CIOs can kind of go back and forth between career and, and politicals. But let's talk about your tenure at the State Department as a CIO. So when Secretary Pompeo brought you in, what was the charge he gave you? What was some of the things you wanted to get done as CIO at the State Department? What impressed me uh, when I interviewed with the Secretary and the Undersecretary for Management, Brian Bulatow, is how focused they were on building long-term infrastructure and long-term capabilities. Uh, They really wanted to bring in somebody that they thought had a track record of dealing with very complex organizations Uh, and making rapid progress. Uh, We have so many technology opportunities in front of us that they wanted to bring in somebody who had a global scale and leaned toward innovation. So you think about the move to cloud, move to mobility. Uh, We were in our early stages at the State Department at that time, but I think we were poised to make rapid progress, uh, you know, with the right kind of support from leadership. So the State Department is like no other organization you've probably worked at. So as you walked in, What did you do? How big was the learning curve for you? You know, it's funny. I benefited from uh, extraordinary preparation while I went through the security clearance process. So I had uh, kind of a long runway before I actually arrived in March. And I have to give tremendous credit to Karen Mumma, who was the acting CIO. We had uh, at least weekly meetings where I met with her and then I met with the deputy CIOs. And we really went from soup to nuts on what was the history of technology, what were some of the challenges, and what were some of our aspirations. So actually, when I arrived in March, I had a pretty good picture of the situation at the State Department, and it kind of felt like I'd already been there for six months. Yeah, I know the security clearance process is a frustration for everyone. Does it really need to take six months? Some would argue yes, many would argue no. So you walked in, what were some of those goals and did you accomplish them? Here we are, you know, 20, 22 months later, did you meet those goals that you set out for yourself? Yeah, actually, I, I think we did. I produced a document after 30 days uh, with uh, some primary areas of focus. And luckily for us, this, of course, is pre-COVID. One of our major objectives was to get people onto the cloud, to get them to Office 365, to get them onto mobile devices and do it in a very secure, scalable, reliable way. So we had centralized support, we had centralized identity and access management, and we tested out capacity to support a global enterprise in those environments. 
And I would say we completed the, the substantial part of that work in December. And then as you know, we all went to telework uh, shortly after that. The State Department, which didn't have a history of massive telework, went from, I'd say, single digits uh, working from home or other sites to at our peak over 90% of people around the world, FTEs, local staff, et cetera, actually being able to do their job remotely. We put out a survey and we asked how people felt they were in being productive after we get everyone up and running. And the majority of people said they were either as productive and a, a small but meaningful percent say they were, they were more productive than when they're in the office, which is a pretty remarkable statistic. You know, there's something to be said about not having to commute, not having to put on a tie sometimes, right? <laughs> it makes you more productive maybe a little bit. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to just touch upon a couple of those uh, uh, success stories. When we talk about technology accomplishments, you mentioned uh, central support for ICAM, central support moving to the cloud, Office 365 mobile devices. Walk me through some of your accomplishments, some of the things that are different today than they were, obviously, when you got there roughly almost two years ago. So after preparing for core infrastructure to get us to cloud, to be able to support uh, mobile access, the thing we learned that we didn't expect to learn uh, during the COVID crisis is that we're actually an agile organization. And by taking that federated model, which is used to focusing on emerging opportunities, uh, we actually capitalized on the core culture of the State Department, which is the ability to quickly form cross-functional teams uh, analyze the situation, come up with recommendations, disband, reform, et cetera. And we didn't call it Agile, but Agile is actually in our culture. When we had to go to massive telework, we had literally uh, hundreds of applications that had never been accessed from outside uh, our facilities, outside of our core network, and they needed to be uh, enabled. And as we're accumulating this long list of requirements, we're realizing that there are functions, there are bureaus that actually can't do their job at all until we provide them with remote access. So that gave us our focus, our sense of urgency, and we were able to incorporate some agile principles, which otherwise are really difficult to incorporate into a large organization. The concept of a minimal viable product. Uh, hard to sell when things are calm, giving someone a minimal viable product. It doesn't even sound good. But the ability to focus on what are the essential features and functions that a particular bureau or a particular area needs to get online and get working allowed us to have that very lean approach to requirements and then to iterate and iterate and iterate. And because we're doing things in a very short cycle, the cost of doing rework was very low. So people didn't feel defensive if something wasn't optimal. We'd have people deploy new capabilities uh, overnight, come in in the morning. If they worked, great, move on to the next requirement. If they didn't work, well, you know, that was a week or a day investment. Let's quickly turn it around and improvement until it does work. So the fundamental principles of Agile, continuous feedback, deep engagement with the user, a rapid iteration just became how we were operating. And we didn't spend a lot of time having philosophical debates on what Agile is. We just sort of did the work. And after a few months went by, we realized, wow, we got more done in a few months than maybe we would have gotten in a year or two in the past. And we didn't do it by violating any sort of security principles, violating good process. If anything, we doubled down on good cybersecurity and good deployment processes. 
And so I think one of the most important deliverables during this period is not a what, but a how. And the ability of the organization to have confidence in its ability to identify technology opportunities and rapidly deliver capabilities. And that is something that I think, as I said, fits with our core culture and something that I, I really think will endure well beyond my tenure. Without a doubt, the State Department has been a tough place for technology. It's not so much that state hasn't had successes or, or is stuck in you know, the, the world of COBOL and, and uh, old technology and mainframes, but the, the federated approach, the, the decentralized nature has been a challenge for CIO after CIO after CIO. Do you think that the pandemic, the urgency of the pandemic was the, uh, I'll call it, killer app that State Department and I'll point to many other agencies were, were almost waiting for to, to create that agile environment as you describe it? Yeah, I think it created a sense of urgency. When I talked to my other uh, federal CIO colleagues, maybe it's unfair to say there was a fair amount of surprise in agency leadership about how well things work, but there was a fair amount of surprise in agency leadership how well things work. And so I think it both gave leadership confidence in their IT organizations, but also IT leadership confidence in their ability to deliver. And without that pressure, I don't think we would have evolved anywhere near as quickly. But there was also pressure on the users to engage in technology in a different way. If you wanted to collaborate before COVID, you might reserve a conference room, uh, have regular meetings, a lot of face-to-face -face time, uh, and that's how you operate. It's a very much a face-to-face -face culture. Those same teams suddenly had to get very conversant with video conferencing capability, collaboration tools of all sorts in order to get their job done. And I think a great analogy at the State Department is it's like being immersed in a country where you have to speak the language to, uh, to survive. Uh, you can study all you want, but once you immerse yourself into a country and a culture, you learn very quickly and you learn very deeply how to adapt. The same thing happened with tools like uh, Microsoft Teams and, and uh, other collaboration and conferencing tools. People got very good in a very short period of time Without this pressure, I'm not sure you could come back in three, four, five years and see the same degree of change. And because technology collaboration capabilities can cut across geographic distance, can cut across time zones, it really is ideally suited to this global organization that wants to tap into the best talent, the best experience to solve problems, wherever that person may be, where, you know, whatever country they may be in, whatever role they're playing, and technology gives you the ability to do that. Stuart, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue this conversation because I want to uh, dip into that agile discussion a little bit more because I think, again, a lot of agencies have, have followed suit. My guest today is Stuart McGuigan, the State Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Stuart McGuigan the State Department's Chief Information Officer. Stuart, this is in many ways an exit interview. Your last day will be uh, January 20th when the administration ends. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me right before you uh, head back to the private sector potentially. One of the things that you talked about was Agile. And I know a lot of times when we hear Agile, we, hear, we think of DevSecOps, we think of a software development methodology. And not that the state isn't Agile in that sense, but you're talking about it in the broader sense and one of the reasons why I think you guys are, were able to be agile, specifically during the pandemic, but even beyond the pandemic, is 
you created some sort of governance structure to bring people together to really overcome some of the traditional barriers and obstacles that state faced to get enterprise-wide capabilities like Office 365. Walk me through what you did, how it worked, and, and what difference is it today than it was, again, 20 months ago or so. When I arrived, I, there was a wonderful announcement from the secretary that said the CIO is responsible for all aspects of IT and, and listed them, including cyber and architecture. So coming right out of the gate, you know, I was given the secretary's authority to tackle not just IRM's challenges, but really IT at the enterprise level. And so I think the first thing that we need to do is really understand how things worked today. And as we said before, we're in a federated organization by design, and that's our strength. And while we don't want to be overly centralized and monolithic and give people solutions that are either overkill or underfunctioned, we also don't want to be a lot of little countries operating independently. We want some of the economies to scale. So we created a group called the IT Executive Council. And the goal was to make that as inclusive as possible. So if you're an IT leader within a bureau, big or small, you are on iTech. And we meet quarterly with the full plenary session. But we also broke it up into smaller working groups. And the idea was to take leaders outside of IRM in many cases and have them help us develop capabilities like architecture, like cybersecurity, like how to deploy technology to the field in our field first initiative, workforce, and so on. And so be able to tap into the best and brightest leaders, even though they're distributed throughout the department. And the goal is to identify opportunities where if we operate collectively, we benefit individually. But we don't force technology onto bureaus that can't use it. And so I'll, I'll pick cloud technology. Being able to develop an enterprise cloud capability that is robust, high performance, secure, and recoverable uh, is something that many bureaus need but not every bureau needs the same degree of horsepower behind what they're doing. So by working with uh, Oboe, by working with Consular Affairs, we can create a cloud capability that is highly resilient, highly performant, uh, meets extraordinary requirements for global operation, and any bureau that has those same requirements can use it. But if all they need is some hosting capabilities to be able to do some analytical modeling, they can go their own way if we don't have a product that's being offered. So this idea of leveraging the decentralized nature and understanding that we could capitalize on opportunities for innovation bureau by bureau, bring that to the group and those that could benefit from using those capabilities would benefit. So we tried to really cut the cord on the tension between are we centralized? Are we standardized? Are we decentralized? As if those are things where you could be one or the other and say, let's pick our spots where an enterprise scale capability advantages, maybe not every bureau, but lots of bureaus, and then look for opportunities to support individual groups or regions where they may want to do something very innovative. Well, let's support them. And maybe that turns into an enterprise product and goes in the enterprise catalog, but maybe it doesn't. And I think, you know, part of the virtue of what we did was creating that open environment, not trying to mandate anything because in decentralized organization mandates produce actually the opposite reaction in my experience. 
but give people a forum where they could share innovation and progress, get credit for it, and everyone benefits. It's in getting to their mission faster, better, and at lower cost. So I have to ask, as you started to propose this approach, as you started to put this executive committee together, how many people whispered to you, that's never going to work? We've tried that before. Did you get that from anyone? You know, you, you get that wherever you go, whether it's government or corporations. I've been the new CIO a number of times. I can remember once being in the lunch line, I won't say which company, the person in front of me didn't see me and they're having a conversation and said, well, it's the same old, same old. I've outlasted six CIOs. I'll outlast this one. And so I had to laugh. And then he saw me, of course, was horrified. And I said, yeah, you could. I'm sure you could outlast me. Uh, you know, you've been here 20 something years. Uh, but why would you want to? Why wouldn't you want to take advantage of someone coming in where you could make progress and change the trajectory of IT? And so I'd say, while there's always some of that you know, re resistance, I'd, I'd say that wasn't the norm here. And people were ready to make much more rapid progress in technology. I think they were tired of lagging in the federal government in, in critical areas. And the needs of people, particularly in the field, was so acute that I think we had more alignment than lack of alignment in the need to get together. And then in that environment, in iTech and other environments, we encourage really healthy debate. I shared right away that one of my favorite things is to be told that and prove that I'm wrong because the alternative is I'm wrong and I don't know it. If you can show me better thinking or a better idea, then we all benefit from that. So by having a healthy debate right off the bat, I think we got rid of some of the skepticism and some of the resistance that naturally occurs when a new person comes in in a senior role. How about from the fact that the decentralized nature of the State Department, did you run into any challenges with some of the bureaus saying, I don't have to listen to you, you're just the headquarters guy or you're just the IRM guy, I'm the CIO or I'm controlling the technology for my bureau, my office, my, my whatever. Did you run into that as well? No, not, not really. And because uh, our leadership, the secretary and the undersecretary for management were focused on field first, that was probably the number one strategy of the State Department. I, I immediately uh, went overseas, uh, went to different posts and met with people, uh, certainly within IT, uh, doing jobs at all levels, but also leadership. And so, you know, really listened and made sure that they understood that I understood what their challenges were. So I think we, we didn't get as much of that. You know, I think we had some people with a wait and see attitude. Uh, but one of the benefits, again, of a federated organization is you work with the people who are willing to work with you. You go to create a community of the willing. And once that starts to succeed, people starting to have faith that maybe we can actually do something new. And then if you get enough people on board who are innovating and deploying new technology, then the laggards start to worry they'll be left behind. And pretty soon you get almost everybody. You don't always get everybody, but you get most people on board. Um, nothing breeds success like success. It's such a simple concept, the way you just outlined it. Hey, let's, let's make sure they know we're listening. Let's make sure they know we wanna uh, make change that's positive for everyone. And let's make sure that let them see some success. It, it seems so simple, but for some reason, it's, it's more difficult to, to get done on, on the surface, on, on, the, on the ground. I want to go back to something you said, because there was a recent CIO survey that came out, and I think you were a part of it based on uh, the, the, and from the Professional Services Council. And it 
one of the most interesting pieces to that, I just want to kind of tag back to something you said, was the survey respondents felt like the government is not as far behind when it comes to technology as the private sector, and they seem to be rapidly catching up. And you mentioned just a minute or two ago about the people were ready across the State Department to make rapid progress, tired of lagging in the federal government. Walk me through, do you think, based on you, know, you being in the private sector, you coming into government, is there that thirst for innovation? Is there that thirst to catch up more quickly? Are you, have you seen that over your 20 months about how the government is, is not, you know, again, I'll, you know, still stuck in client server, still using mainframes, still, still hiring people who only know COBOL? Do you see that, that, it, that whatever gap there may have been or there perceived to be is, is closing? I think a thirst for innovation is the right way to put it. And it's certainly within the State Department, but I, I can say being on the CIO Council, that characterizes every major agency that I've dealt with. It's not a talent issue. I mean, I came in, we didn't change really a lot. We didn't really change the, the leadership. We moved some uh, responsibilities around. I was also fortunate enough to... Uh, uh, be joined by my principal deputy CIO, Mike Mestrovich, who's, you know, one of the best technology leaders I've worked with. But really, it was the same people. And suddenly, we're able to move much more quickly. So I, I think some of it is, it's so easy to get into a defensive posture in IT. Uh, it's easy to feel like you're not appreciated, that people don't understand how complex technology is and the level of intelligence required to be able to develop and deploy technology. And all that's true, but sort of irrelevant. And so by giving confidence to the IT group that the leadership was going to be in their corner and that you know, they didn't have to take any personal risk in pushing forward and, and being innovative, I think we un, unleashed a, a lot of creativity. We're about to take a quick break, but if there's one innovation you'd point to that you know, is on par with or equal to the, the private sector, based on your experience at the State Department, what would you have pointed to that you were able to accomplish over the last you know, six months or, sure. or nine months? I think one of the most innovative things we've done at the State Department is actually a joint effort uh, working for the, with the Center for Analytics um, in developing predictive modeling to help guide um, diplomatic decision-making and resource allocation. And one of the things that struck me as a kind of a, an exciting difference than uh, my background, which has primarily been in healthcare, uh, is the ability to use analytical tools to help uh, reduce the uncertainty in making decisions about foreign policy. And so if I have a machine learning model and I'm trying to diagnose cancer through lung x-rays, the uh, performance has to be extremely high right? You, you, you can't be at like 60%. But if you're trying to predict that there might be unrest in part of the world to guide scenario modeling to help you better prepare, it doesn't have the same life and death impact that specific healthcare does, although our decisions do affect life and death. So the ability to use modeling to help with decision making, I think is remarkable. Uh, early on, uh, uh, one of the bureaus shared a model that looked at uh, predicting population migration and conflict. And they had a, a statistical model that had many variables in it. But one of the ones that struck me that I've referenced a fair amount is that in some parts of the world, a sharp decrease in the price of goats predicts a significant population migration. And if you think about it, 
Well, that kind of makes sense. People are trying to liquidate their assets and have ready money to be able to accommodate a, a move. And so in some ways it's common sense, but what the machine learning model does is it codifies common sense. It says, how big a drop? How big a move in population? How soon? And so this ability to kind of look around corners and see what might happen in different parts of the world that could guide preparation for diplomatic discussions and decisions really is a game changer. And we could see diplomacy happening at the speed of technology enabled by analytics. So contributing the technology capability from IRM, working with the Center for Analytics as part of MSS within the State Department, I think we really have made incredible progress in bringing analytics to the practice of diplomacy. That's a tremendous example. I really do appreciate you sharing it with us. I didn't realize how much progress the center has made. We we obviously followed the fact it launched, but it sounds like it's it's really making a difference in, in, in the way it was, it was dreamed of. Stuart, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest is Stuart McGuigan, the State Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Stuart McGuigan, the State Department's Chief Information Officer. Stuart, this is in many ways an exit interview for you as your last day. It was on uh, January 20th, so I appreciate you taking the time and talking to us. We talked a lot about the changes you made from a CIO's perspective, and a lot of it was on the governance side. A lot of it was on, you know, kind of dealing with some of the the business process changes, which is so, so important for CIOs. I want to take Go to the next level down and talk maybe a little harder technology discussion. And let's start with the cloud. You mentioned that. You mentioned Office 365. How else did you help bring State Department forward to start using the cloud as an enterprise capability so applications and capabilities could get to the field, as you mentioned, field-first initiative more quickly? Cloud solves a lot of problems. Uh, Access, availability, but the heart is an infrastructure play if you're just thinking about cloud. So what we've been pushing forward is software as a service. One of the you know, very interesting uh, challenges with government work is uh, the ATO process. And one of the objectives that you know, I was asked to take on when I arrived was, you know, we got to streamline the ATO process and uh, we got to make it faster. And it's in the way of developing new capabilities. And I looked at it and it is, complex. There are quite a few steps. There are quite a few fields to fill out. But if you're bringing in brand new technology and you're putting it on your network, you kind of have to do the homework to make sure that you're not creating harm or a vulnerability of some kind. So yes, we can speed up the ATO process, but by its very nature, it's going to be involved, intrusive, and technical. So instead we said, well, what if we could go around the ATO process in the sense of doing all of our development on an already ATO platform. And so we've been pushing to software as a service with service support within IRM using ServiceNow, Salesforce.com, and other platforms. And the carrot is if you can get what you want done for your post, for your bureau, for your region, in Salesforce, then you can use low-code, no-code configuration capabilities to be able to provide process support for your users. And because you're operating within a safe and secure platform, you don't have to go through that overhead and delay. 
So speed to market is tremendously advantaged by using software as a service cloud-based capabilities versus going off and coding all my own stuff, which we know developers love to do. So getting that pivot saying, yeah, you might have to take a standard interface. There might be a slightly different way of accomplishing your purpose. But hey, what if you could have a fully ATO'd capability in six weeks, eight weeks versus nine months, 12 months? Is that attractive to you? And so then really have that discussion. There, there may be cases where you need a tool that just isn't accommodated by software as a service. But that speed to market, the ability to eliminate all kinds of overhead work uh, that increases the cost of doing technology projects is tremendously attractive. And once you put that incentive in place, you find people are very creative. They figure out all different ways of getting what they need to get done in those types of platforms. And they lose patience with, I think, traditional one-off kind of coding uh, approaches. And so we're right in the middle of that pivot. Uh, we, we had what we called an application development summit, which was not required. Nobody had to attend it. It was global, obviously online. And I had hoped we'd get around 200 people to actively participate. It was open to everybody. Anyone in any bureau could bring their ideas and talk about their projects. But it was voluntary. And we ended up with seven or 800 people or more actually participating across the department. And to me, it was one of those signs are that we're really understanding how to use cloud capabilities. We're really understanding how to use agile. And we're really believing in the model where uh, we're going to collaborate. We're not going to command and control. Uh, we're going to benefit from the innovations that could occur anywhere in the department. And everyone would get access to the very best the department can do for everything they do or they can contribute something new and innovative and different and get rewarded for that. Were you surprised just a little that this was so well attended? You said about 200, you expected 800 showed up. What, what, what was that feeling for you at that point? Did you know you, you, made, the, you made a difference? Yes, because people vote with their feet because you didn't have to attend this. It wasn't in your job description and everyone has a day job. The amount of work to both prepare for this and contribute to it and participate is considerable. We had it early in the morning and late in the evening so that we could accommodate different time zones. Uh, but the enthusiasm re really did impress me. You know, I, I look for signs that the culture has embraced an approach. You know, you, you can't really change culture. You certainly can't change culture in a 230-year-old organization. But what you can do is, is align with what the culture does best. And in our case, it's be able to bring and recognize great ideas across the globe, across the different bureaus, and to be able to share them uh, and participate in a community that's bigger than yourself. And this included people from all over the world, all over different regions, included FTEs, included foreign nationals. I mean, we really had a robust group attending this and fully participating. And really we're using that as the starting point to collect what, capabilities do we need to provide globally on an enterprise basis that they don't have today that can help people do an even better job in bringing new features and functions to their users. And from that event or that, that application summit, did new applications or new ideas come from it? Did something get shared or is that something more, maybe more long-term that 
you've got 50 ideas that you're starting to go down that path to use those platforms you mentioned with low code, no code to eventually get new capabilities out the door. Oh, any number of new uh, projects were kicked off by people seeing how you could use a service now to enable a process. Uh, you know, light bulbs went off all over. And so the demand and interest is, is really uh, just accelerated uh, tremendously. You know, we have a proud tradition, I think, in the past of, uh, you know, clever IT uh, leaders within different posts might see an opportunity to automate something and they'll have something coded up and it'll, and it'll do a great job of supporting that post, but isn't always generalizable. And so people saw how they could still get that speed and that focus on supporting their leadership, but they would leave behind something that many other posts could use. So the value of what they created was, was just tremendous. So we, we've seen a, a, an enormous amount of activity and had to uh, devote some more leadership and focus within IRM to make sure that you know, we're not getting in the way of the speed of progress that the department wants to make as a whole. Uh, Stuart, let's take one last break. When we come back, we can finish up our conversation. My guest today is Stuart McGuigan, the State Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Stuart McGuigan, the State Department's Chief Information Officer. Stuart, as I've mentioned earlier, this is an exit interview. You are, your last day is January 20th. So appreciate you taking the time here and talking to me. Did you make changes to the IRM organization? And I think we'll talk about cybersecurity in a second, but to deal with the business process side, to deal with the application side, to deal with the customer side, were, were you, did you move some seats around or, or yeah, change we, up some of the offices? One of the things we did early on was uh, take the CTO position and focus it more purely on innovation. The CTO role under uh, Dr. Glenn Johnson when I arrived had both significant operations, but also neat new stuff. And uh, Dr. Johnson is uh, uh, a computer scientist and an innovator. And so I asked him, I said, you know, would you be happy uh, refocusing the CTO role on things like robotic process automation, machine learning, satellite telecoms? And, uh, you know, his eyes lit up and he's just a, done a tremendous job. And then we took the operational parts that were a little bit bifurcated between overseas and domestic and really put those together and move some things around to get more leverage from the different operational areas, whether it's mobility, whether it's network, whether it's uh, different parts of infrastructure. So same dynamic leadership team and uh, same objectives, but by just shifting things around to make it a little easier for them to get the work that they needed to get done, done, we've seen a tremendous productivity. That's one of the things I'm most happy about as I'm moving on is I have 100% confidence in this IT leadership team. Uh, and it's really a leadership team that if I was doing something similar anywhere, com commercial or government, uh, I, I would love to take these leaders because they, they really know how to get work done. Another example of how the government's not so far behind our friends in the private sector. I think that's a, that's a great example. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, the other piece I do want to make sure we get a chance to talk about is this enterprise cybersecurity uh, official, this new office that you uh, created. I did a story about this a couple months ago, and, I, and it's a big change for the State Department because, again, going back to part of our previous conversation today, 
state is decentralized. It is in many ways, cyber was, was split up between your office and the diplomatic security office. And it seems like through your efforts and working across the, the entire agency, you're able to set up a new accountability office, somebody to really drive cybersecurity, not just on one part of it, but across the entire agency. So walk me through the decision process and, and some of those goals for this new enterprise cybersecurity office. One of the questions that I got right off the bat from oversight groups, from congressional staffers is, you know, about cybersecurity. As you can imagine, it's, it's topic number one, has been for a long time. And there was an, an awareness that we had a slightly different model than other CFO Act agencies had, in that the CIO didn't necessarily have all the authority for driving uh, cybersecurity policy and operations. And, and our colleagues in diplomatic security had quite a bit of responsibility, and then we within core IRM had responsibility. So, you know, we first sat down with the leaders of both groups, and we created a cybersecurity working group as part of the IT Executive Council and co-chaired it with uh, the IRM CISO and the Deputy Assistant Secretary within a diplomatic security responsible for cyber and, and counterintelligence and said, all right, we want you two to work together to figure out where are we today? And we spent quite a bit of time doing level five process mapping of every cybersecurity process within the NIST framework and said, you know, what do we actually do today? And I think one of the things we learned was we didn't have a lot of overlap at the process level. The duties were pretty separate and distinct. And then doing some of the process work, you know, revealed some opportunities for improvement and a few gaps, um, not on the operational side, but on the uh, policy and reporting side. And, and those were very quickly addressed. So we said, all right, what are the, what's the most important focus going forward? And that's to have a unified set of policies uh, and define policies properly as statements of intent of where we want to be, not operational details, but a policy should define what good is, not how to get to good. So let's get some uh, policy hygiene there and create a set of policy umbrellas that really cover all aspects of IT and then transparency to create one pane of glass so we could have metrics on our ability to exercise those processes, our performance consolidated into one place so we could look for opportunities to improve or opportunities to le leverage excellent performance. So once we said, you know what, operational equities are gonna stay where they remain because they're actually pretty solid, but we're gonna create an enterprise CISO, which is why we called it an eCISO, who is going to have agency level, department level responsibility for policy development and evolution and performance and communications so that we can leverage the fact that we are somewhat distributed and, and take that from a weakness to a strength. And so, you know, fair amount of discussions, a, a lot of input, but at the end of the day, we created this ECISO job, have been interviewing candidates the panel includes the assist, acting assistant secretary for DS and uh, the uh, deputy assistant secretary within INR. And I can tell you, it was almost surprising how aligned we are, what the role is and what the best candidate needs to look like within the role. So this will happen, I think, by definition after I'm gone. But I think uh, we will, you will see an ECISO placed who has the right experience 
and we will really uh, leverage an enterprise oversight capability uh, that maybe we haven't had as clearly before. So I, I think this is one of the, the things we identified first as an opportunity within this leadership team. And I think it's one of our best accomplishments to really put this framework in place that I think will we'll really have enduring value. Is there some concern at all on your end that the folks at Diplomatic Security, and I'm not asking you to pick on them, so let me preface that, is that they were just kind of, okay, time had come to, to basically not give up, but say the good things, do the right thing, but in the end, they're still going to do what they want to do, and, and, and you're still going to have this bifurcated cybersecurity. When the secretary says do it, that gets you started, but that doesn't finish the job. I think when we mapped out the processes and we saw that we're actually in pretty good shape, we need a little more in terms of metrics and being able to identify continuous improvement opportunities. But what DS does well, they do very well. And there's no need to replicate incident management. There's no need to replicate some of the monitoring capabilities they have. And it fits nicely within the DS mandate overall. And, and once we stopped each group playing for all the marbles and said, no, we, we have distinct and critical roles that are only increasing in importance we change the level of communication and collaboration. I love the expression, good fences make good neighbors. So once we defined the appropriate boundaries and agreed on a future state direction, I've seen tremendous collaboration uh, across the groups. And I've had uh, non-technical leaders throughout the agency come to me and say, I've never seen uh, DS and IRM work so well together. Uh, and while there's always opportunity for improvement, I, I really have to uh, show my appreciation for the leadership in DS, the support from the undersecretary to be able to get this done. Once we establish this framework and people could see that, they, if anything, they're going to get better support to do what they do. They're going to have a greater opportunity to be more successful. They're going to have a greater opportunity uh, to get the resources they need on an enterprise basis. I think uh, you know a lot of the skepticism went away. All right, good news, and something obviously we will continue to watch as well because it's an important change that, that needs to come. Stuart, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so let me thank my guest. Stuart McGuigan is the State Department's Chief Information Officer. Stuart, thank you so much for your time today, and obviously thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.